The sexual revolution of the 1960s was about everything but a biblical sexual ethic. A response from the church was necessary as the cultural narrative was undoing God's order and design for his good gift of sex. Many of us responded with what's known now as the purity movement as we ministered to kids in the 1980s and 90s. While the purity movement and its advocates were well-intentioned, we are now able to look back and evaluate the effectiveness of the movement and its message. To move forward in our ministry to kids, we need to reckon with our mistakes and change course where needed. That's what we're discussing as we chat with Rachel Joy Welcher about her new book, Talking Back to Purity Culture, Rediscovering Faithful Christian Sexuality, on this episode of Youth Culture Matters. From the Center for Parent Youth Understanding, this is Youth Culture Matters. If you're a parent, youth worker, educator, counselor, grandparent, or anyone else who cares about kids, we're glad you've joined us for this practical, informative, and hope-filled podcast. This is a place where together we talk and think Christianly about the rapidly changing world of today's children, teens, and young adults. Well, welcome everybody to another episode of Youth Culture Matters. I'm Walt Mueller here at the Center for Parent Youth Understanding, and joining me as usually always, Jason Soshnick on the West Coast up in Spokane, Washington. Always good to be with you. Yes, I like how you say that all the time. It makes me feel good about myself, <laughs> Jason. Just that's I, good. That's what, knowing that's that you like to be with me uh, makes all the difference in the world. So that's just an awesome thing. Uh, <laughs> So today, we're going to have, uh, I think, an intriguing and important, timely uh, discussion about an aspect of sexuality and how sexuality has been addressed over the course of time, particularly yeah. over the last 40 or 50 years in the culture of the Christian church in North America, particularly the evangelical church. And we're going to talk a bit about sexual purity and what that means but I want to jump into this before I introduce our guest. Jason, I want to go to you because you and I, you know, through our sexual integrity initiative here and our travels together and the resources that we produce together, what you're doing there uh, very uniquely at Project 619, which we always commend to youth workers and parents. What you're doing there, what we're doing here, we have made a deliberate decision about the language we use. And I'm wondering if you yes. can speak to that yeah, well, and I think our guest is going to have so much more uh, knowledge to to be able to add to this, and, and so I don't want to make I want to make sure we don't uh, take anything from that. I I have always seen the power in words. Words have a way of uh, forming the way that we think, the way that we respond, the way that we act. And so, you know, from the earliest days of doing work around sex, sexuality. Uh, and gender, it, it's always been really important to move away from some of the verbiage of sexual purity. Uh, and that's why we chose the word sexual integrity. Uh, so often what we saw with sexual purity or what I was seeing both in my own experience and then also in the experience of so many of the students I was working with is they were learning how to just say no, but never really say yes. And um, one of the things that early on I recognized is that God's no's are always encompassed within a larger yes. And sexual integrity is this thing that allows us to, 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 to see life, to see our relationship in Christ, to see the way in which we are obedient to Christ with our bodies as a form of being able to say yes, yes to a fuller, more flourishing life as we pursue him, especially as we think about sex and sexuality. 
And so much of what I was engaging close to 20 years ago was so much of a no, a no, 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 a rule, uh, a sin management behavior modification model. And we were trying to do something different. And I remember early on getting a lot of pushback because we were not using the word sexual purity. And we, you and I, when we started long before we started the sexual integrity initiative, when we were first stoking the flames of our friendship, that was something we discussed. And I, I um, have always seen, you know, sexual integrity being this thing that's not just about uh, a few different aspects of our life, but our entire life and our whole being, who we are, mind, body, soul, spirit, and how we relate to ourselves, sexual or as sexual beings, uh, both whether we're single or we're married, whether we're widowed or we're divorced, whether whatever the situation or the title that we might add, it, it is something that we carry all through life. Yeah, and I really appreciate that. And, and I know that some people who are listening right now might be taken aback a little bit by just what you've talked about there, Jason, that you know, for so many years they've equated you know, God's will and God's way for this beautiful gift of sexuality and gender uh, to be all about purity. And we want you to stick with us because we want you to think a little further about that and some of the some of the practical and theological ramifications of that. And that's why we have our guest on today. Rachel Joy Welcher is joining us from Iowa. Rachel, welcome. Great to be here. And what Rachel has done recently, she released a book uh, published by University Press here. The title is Talking Back to Purity Culture. Now that may, of course, you know, talking back to purity culture, you may think, because I've read some some books who are, that are not written by Christians about this that are just scathing, you know, diatribes against uh, God's order and design for sexuality. That's not what that's not what Rachel has done here. This is really helpful. So it's talking back to purity culture, and then the subtitle is just beautiful: rediscovering faithful Christian sexuality. So uh, Rachel is a writer. Uh, she's an editor at Fathom Magazine. She's the author of other books. She's a poet as well. And she lives in Glenwood, Iowa, as I said, with her husband, pastor and author Evan Welcher. So she's a pastor's wife. Might be the first pastor's wife we've had here on the podcast. <laughs> uh, I can remember. Ex ex yeah. So. All right. <laughs> yeah. So, Rachel, I, you know, for those who are unfamiliar, let's start with this. For those who are unfamiliar with the purity movement, talk about that. Tell us what that is. So, I mean, there's been a purity culture throughout the ages, but what I'm focusing on is modern evangelical American purity culture, really a response to these fears coming out of the 70s and 80s over teen pregnancy and STDs. Okay, so there's just this this fear, this um, scrambling to figure out what to do, and um, the church and public education, it actually um, filtered into the public schools, but there was this push for abstinence, um, staying a virgin until marriage. And this movement was marked by conferences, books, pledges, even father-daughter balls and, you know, mother-daughter teas. <clears throat> and that all on the surface doesn't sound like a problem necessarily, but what happened is that some of the messages um, became their own Christian subculture, and it really drifted from a biblical message and became a lot more about, um, here's what you can do to get good things, um, a very much of a prosperity gospel. So it was it was less about 
living into God's will and God's way for this beautiful gift of sexuality as a way to give glory to God and as an, an act and form of worship to basically kind of making an investment that ultimately you can cash in and then there were promises made once you cash in here's what you're going to get back right right so if you stay a virgin until marriage you will get married at a young age you will have mind-blowing sex from night one and you'll have babies with ease and these were promises that all of us were given as teenagers and you know now in my mid-30s I have friends who are still single, I'm divorced and remarried, um, friends who struggled with infertility, friends who've um, experienced sexual abuse, and they're left wondering what to do with these messages. Um, and were they actually from the Bible? Yeah. Tell what, us- a What would you, you know, go ahead. No, Paul. you go, Jason, I defer. Well, I just, uh, what I'm curious is, as you're, you're studying the purity culture, and and specifically the, the time frame with which you're uh, referencing, are there any uh, individuals that you would say would be the godmother, godfather of the the structure of that, like where it kind of started and how it began? Well, what's interesting is Joshua Harris gets um, most of the blame with his I Kiss Dating Goodbye. But yeah. when I reread his book, it really was not the worst offender by any means. In fact, he used more scripture than a lot of the other authors. Um, now, I'm not commending I Kiss Dating Goodbye at all by any means, but it was interesting to see that he's taking the heat for what a lot of other authors said, things that he never even said. And when I talked to him and interviewed him, he said that. And he said, you know, I'm I'm kind of the poster child. I think it's that book, just the title. And um, I don't know what it was about that book, but it really reinforced purity culture as a Christian subculture. And then I think what happened is it was like, and he said this, it was like his book was a gateway drug to the other books. Yeah, so he's really the face of the purity movement, even though I wouldn't say that his messages were the worst. Um, there are definitely some troubling messages that he promoted, but um, some of the other books were were much, much worse. In in your book, one of the things you do throughout the book is you, you've actually scanned a lot of the more classic texts, if we might call them that, from the purity movement, some of the, mm -hmm. the major authors, including Josh Harris and others. And, you know, you've pointed out positives, you've pointed out, you know, negatives, areas of concern and things like that. I think it's important. I mean, I want to ask you this as you've gone back and you've looked at this. Do you do you do you sense that everybody who was promoting this was actually very well intentioned? Uh, this wasn't something that people just decided to do to to destroy a young person's understanding about sex and sexuality, but. No, I, I think that most of the authors that I researched absolutely wanted what was best. Um, and, you know, I, I approached this hopefully with enough humility to recognize that if I had been a writer, then I probably would have said the same things. Um, and so I think, you know, hindsight is 2020 and, and I am not writing out of some vendetta against the church. I'm writing dead center in the church um, out of love for her. And so any of the authors I critique, I mean, quite a few of them have gone on to um, change their messages and um, say the opposite, and they've seen um, ways that they need to change. And so I have no desire to bash any of the authors that I'm critiquing, but those messages really did shape a culture and they shaped so many of us. They've impacted our marriages, our singleness, our sex lives. And I think it is important that we have the humility to say, okay, how can we do better and be more biblical moving forward? 
Yeah. Part of this comes out of your own story. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So, I mean, there's the academic side. I studied these books for my dissertation when I was getting my uh, Master of Divinity. But really, it's very personal, too, because I went to a Bible college and um, I met a guy and we followed all the rules. Uh, we dated for years. Um, we're engaged for six months. He was my first kiss, you know, all, all the things. And uh, we're very careful. And about four and a half years into our marriage, he decided he didn't want to be a Christian anymore. And he then decided he didn't want to be married to a Christian anymore. And so I found myself um, at about 29, almost 30, uh, divorced after having followed all the rules. And I'm not saying I'm perfect, but you know what I mean? Like I, all the check boxes that you can check. Um, and here I was no longer a virgin because I'd been married, divorced, asking God what in the world. I thought that if I did these things right, I would be mar still married. I'd have kids. Everything would be fine. And so um, I hadn't even realized that I'd bought into that purity culture promise. Um, but I had because I, I started wondering if I must have failed somewhere along the line and I was being punished. Um, and I think that's something a lot of us go through. Some of my friends who are still single wonder, okay, I'm still single. I must be being punished by God for some sin. Um, but I think I was left to grapple with the fact that so many of the messages I'd internalized from these books were not actually from the Bible. And they certainly didn't leave any room for suffering. They didn't leave any room for divorce, for widowhood, for, for any of those things. And so I really wanted to backtrack and reread those books and see what parts were good and what parts we need to change. Was grace missing in a lot of what you read? Do you, as you're talking about this, I'm just thinking about, you know, our understanding of grace. And I know as a human being, I've struggled to understand that, you know, as I've grown in the faith. And that's been, I think, part of sanctification is understanding that more and more as opposed to a works righteousness or the fact that if I cross this particular line, you know, right. I'm finished. God will not have me anymore. Well, yeah, you know, it's it's so interesting because sin was talked about, but in youth culture, for me growing up, sexual sin was the the biggest sin. And if you lost your virginity, you had lost part of your value. You know, there were these really damaging visual metaphors, like the rose passed around the room and getting all crumpled or someone would spit in a cup of water and say, that's what you are after you've gone too far or compare you to a used car. And so, especially as a woman, I was told that sex was the, or my virginity rather, was the greatest gift I could give my spouse. And um, so I think that grace was missing when it came to certain sins. Um, and even those who'd had their virginity stolen from them through abuse still saw that rose passed around the room. So no matter if the youth pastor said, but you know, if, if you've been abused, it's not your fault they're still holding this crumpled rose. That's still them, right, um, in their mind. And so I would say that there wasn't a lot of grace um, for those who sinned sexually, um, and there was lots of grace for those who sinned the sin of gossip or gluttony or, you know, all those. But if you if you had sex before marriage, um, you probably weren't even a Christian. I remember that was the assumption. One of the, the things I'm really surprised by, and I'm seeing this happen now, right? You, you are writing a book in response to what has happened over the last several decades, but the purity culture grew out of something, 
it, the evangelical purity movement itself in the 80s, 90s, it grew out of something. It was in response to something. And now right. we're seeing the response to the purity culture. Can right. you just take us back to that response? What was it responding to? You, you mentioned earlier STDs, teen pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know that there's this dynamic of it really kind of growing even into the public school system like you, you mentioned. But what was the, what was the, the catalyst that caused for this to really kind of start, grow, explode, and be a, a, a common narrative throughout the church um, in the 80s and 90s? Right. I mean, I think it really was fear. Um, we were seeing that a fear that the family, there was a breakdown of the family happening, right? Um, and that that would cause the downfall of civilization, essentially. Um, yeah. I, that sounds dramatic, but that really was the worry, I think, ultimately, if you trace it down the line. And so what was decided was that abstinence was the cure, was the fix um, for keeping the family together, um, for keeping our teenagers safe. And so instead of saying, okay, sexual uh, purity or integrity is a lifelong calling for the Christian, um, it became set up as like, it's this short temporary thing. And if you can make it to this finish line, then you can just unleash all your sexual everything on your spouse and um, you'll be fully satisfied and everything's good. And so, um, yeah, what we saw happen is that it, it started in the church, but public schools also were worried about STDs and teen pregnancy. And so they wanted some of these groups to come into the public schools and teach abstinence. But what happened, and I think it was Silver Ring Thing, talk, the, the founder of Silver Ring Thing talked about this, that once they got into the public schools, they had to remove the gospel. And at first they pushed back and said, we can't preach this message without Jesus. But then eventually they felt like, okay, the message of abstinence is good for Christians and non-Christians. And so I think what happened is that we, this message slowly lost its gospel and became more and more just a means to an end. This is how you can secure future happiness in marriage. And God was really, his God and his glory were missing by the end of it. Mm-hmm. Do you, two really quick questions before we go to break, because I know that um, federal funding became a reality. Do you think right. that that had a huge influence on that very dynamic um, of, of the gospel uh, being removed and as funds became more available, it changed some of the messaging, which turned it into more of a rule-based uh, yes. sin management. Okay. I do. And I, 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 it's hard to say that because I, I'm not saying that abstinence education is wrong, but yeah. it did remove Jesus from it. And so then what is it other than a workspace system? Yeah. And then I, I, I know that we're going to have parents, we're going to have youth workers that are listening to this they're, 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 they might be struggling. They might be having a hard time with what's being said. They might have even said, I have used the very analogies that you right. you uh, just shared in uh, our youth group. Or as a parent, I have, I have, I just had this conversation with my daughter and I, I just did. And so they, they might be in their own guilt or shame in the midst of hearing that. What might you just say before we go to break? Because we have so much more to share, but I, I think it's really important early on that we address that. Oh man, you love your kids and God is so forgiving. And we're all in a process of constantly looking back and trying to figure out how to do better moving forward. So just give yourself grace. I'm not here to say you've done these terrible things to your kid that they can't recover from. In fact, I think the fact that you're listening to this today means that you care. And so just keep praying, asking for wisdom and uh, being humble. 
Hmm. Excellent. Well, we're going to take a quick break and we will be right back with Rachel Joy Welcher here in a moment. In an effort to help you help the kids you know and love navigate their emerging sexuality to the glory of God, we've launched a sexual integrity initiative here at CPYU. Thanks to a generous grant from a company called DAS, you can access our sexual integrity initiative and a growing number of resources for free by visiting the website at sexualintegrityinitiative.com. Welcome back to Youth Culture Matters. We are having a discussion around talking back to purity culture with Rachel Joy Welcher. And I want to dive right back into the conversation that we were having prior to the break uh, and specifically dive a little bit more into your book and some of the things that you bring out. And and what I really appreciated in in the book is that you 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 tackled the subject of modesty, but specifically mm. you tackled modesty not just from a female perspective, which I really want you to dive into, but a male perspective as well. Or uh, not maybe not perspective is the correct word, but but looking at it from the way in which writers often talked about or missed male mm. modesty, which is a conversation that I have felt has missed for a very long time. So quickly, if you wouldn't mind, dive into some of the conversations that we, we've observed or you observed uh, in the purity culture when it comes to the conversations around modesty, first with females and then with males. Oh, well, uh, the men and women were always, or the young boys and young girls were always divided into two groups. And the men, they talked to them about lust and porn and masturbation. And the women, they talked to them about covering up sufficiently. And so I think that alone kind of shows what, what the focus was um, and how it differed. So women were, uh, it was assumed that young women weren't even struggling with lust, but that they were causing lust in young men and that they needed to um, make sure not to do that. And so here's an example is that you'd go to a Christian camp and the girls would be told that they had to wear one pieces with a shirt over them and the boys could walk around in their shorts with no shirt. Um, and so there was just this assumption again that women are sexless and that men are constantly going to stumble. And so um, from a young age, I was taught to view my body, not by my parents, but by the books, um, taught to view my body as just a stumbling block. Um, and so, you know, the beauty of being fearfully and wonderfully made and all those things kind of get pushed to the side. And as a woman, you're just so aware that you might be at fault um, is what we felt for causing someone to lust. Um, and so the conversation about modesty is interesting because I do think that modesty has a place and that we need to love one another. And so whatever cultural context you're in, you should care what modesty looks like, right? So depending on what country you're in, there are different things that are viewed as sexualized. Um, and so we're always thinking of America where a lot of things are sexualized, but wherever you are, I think man or woman, we should care what modesty means and respect that culture and respect one another. But the problem with the modesty rhetoric is that it blames women for the sins that men are committing. So what I would tell a woman is she is intentionally dressing immodestly because she wants to cause someone to stumble. She is committing the sin of selfishness and manipulation. But if that man lusts, he is committing the sin of lust and scripture would hold him accountable for that and her accountable for her selfishness. We have to untangle culpability here. It's very important. Do you think that there was a lack of, uh, maybe I'm reading between the lines and, and, and you can tell me if I'm incorrect in this, but is there a lack of 
consistency and congruency between the modesty conversation for both male and female? Oh, absolutely. I don't think men were ever talked to about modesty. Um, and, and as a result, I don't think men thought of the fact that they, that women might struggle with lust too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, I, I, there, there's something about that swimsuit rule that I've always been intrigued by, um, because I, I, I feel like it's always a conversation for women and it was never a conversation for men. And I brought up one time the fact that like, well, why do we not have men wear shirts? And right. the, the, I would love for you to re, to respond to this because, um, a few of the women leaders said, well, we like, that's just not the struggle that many women have is, mm-hmm. you know, looking at the male chest versus the female <laughs> body. And, and I said, well, I, I, maybe not for you, but I feel like it is for others at, at times. It can be. I mean, how would you have responded to that? How might you have engaged based upon what you've experienced and where the, the purity movement may not have addressed it or been as consistent? Well, you know, what's interesting is that um, men were always depicted as the visual creatures and women weren't visual. But I think that's really changed. First of all, I don't know if it was ever true, but I know that it's changed because with media, um, when I was, I, I taught high school for 10 years um, in Christian schools and so many of those young women struggled with porn. And so I do think that regardless of how it was back in the day, um, women are visual now too. And so this idea that it's only women that should cover up and men can just walk around, you know, in their little shorts without a shirt. Um, I don't think that's fair um, or consistent. Yeah. But the overall message that I would want to communicate about modesty is that modesty is not fixed. Lust is not fixed by making sure another person does something and puts on the right clothes. It's It has to take place in our own heart because the irony is that, you know, my Christian school kids are at a Christian camp. Okay, the girl's wearing two t-shirts over her swimsuit, but then you drive down the road and the billboard is practically pornographic. So no matter where we go, we're going to be exposed to sexually explicit things because we live in a secular world. So we have to learn how to um, have self-control with lust, regardless of what people are wearing or not wearing. And also when it comes to men and women in the church, they need to learn how to view each other rightly as brothers and sisters in all purity. We have to start there. You don't start with the outward stuff. You start with the heart. That's where Jesus always started. You, you brought up a really interesting thing there that I want to jump back to. As you And I had written down here, I wanted to, as you're talking with Jason, to ask you about media and you know mm-hmm. pop culture, even social media right now, television, film, whatever. You know... How has that fueled uh, the need to have this conversation with greater intentionality, perhaps at younger and younger ages, parents, of course, and then youth workers as well, about modesty and lust with our kids? Have you seen this issue ramp up over the years? Oh, I mean, I think that kids are dealing with things today that I didn't have to deal with at all. I mean, you know, sexting is a thing and um, as a teacher, I, you know, I'd hear about someone getting sent naked pics from another student, you know, things like that were not, um, I didn't have a cell phone until I was, I think, in college. So um, I think there's definitely more ease with which kids can um, receive temptation. <laughs> um, I think they're dealing with a lot more than I had to deal with. Um, but even when it comes to beauty standards and being found sexy, you see, you know, on Instagram and stuff that especially young girls are feeling the pressure to 
look a certain way and look sexual from a very young age. Um, and so I think just making sure that we're addressing that our bodies and our sexuality are God created good, but they have a purpose and the purpose is not selfish, <laughs> selfishness, you know, and um, the constant approval of friends and men and women. Um, and so just to to talk about our bodies from a biblical biblical perspective, to talk about attraction from a biblical perspective, not to reinforce shame, but to help them understand what our true purpose um, is as human beings, as embodied souls. Within uh, the book, you also then dive into some glaring misses with regards to the purity culture. And um, could you just dive into, you, you specifically pointed to three um, that I thought were really, uh, really helpful. And they're really important, I think, for uh, parents and for youth pastors to understand, because I think that they have unfortunately informed some of what we do even today in our oh, conversations. Yeah. So, so could you address those three that you, uh, and maybe you even have more that you just didn't write about? Well, and if I miss one of the ones you're referring to, let me know, but yeah, you know, the prosperity gospel and purity culture, right? That um, yeah. if you do these things, you'll get these things. That was huge. Uh, the dehumanization of men and women because of some of these conversations on modesty, the idea that lust is solved by um, looking away from women or looking away from men. And then in marriage, just treating your spouse as your sexual outlet. There's no in between. There's no room for friendship or brotherhood and sisterhood. Um, idolatry of sex and virginity. Um, treating virginity as the definition of purity instead of talking about purity as a whole life calling, a whole body, mind, spirit calling. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the other ones that you you point to within within that, where, where there may be subcategories, but but one is infertility and the aspect of the, how you you missed the that we we often missed and never discussed, uh, because the promise that you were discussing just there is the dynamic of when you get married in prosperity gospel, you get married, you have great sex, and then you have children, and yeah. and so the the issue of infertility and then also same sex attraction. Right. Okay. So now I know what you're referring to. The, yeah. yeah uh, sorry. The, the missed realities, yes. um, you know, divorce, widowhood, same-sex attraction, perpetual singleness, and infertility, yeah. um, one of the things. Yeah, what, what's so interesting is that there was nothing about purity culture that prepared us for suffering, and scripture does. And so if we had spent more time in God's word as teenagers, or, you know, going through books of the Bible, learning the character of God, even reading the book of Job would have been better for us than reading yet another book on modesty. Um, what it teaches is that our motivation for living the Christian life imperfectly is God's glory. And we will suffer even if we do the right things, right? And so again, it goes back to, you know, I was at this place where I'm divorced and 30 and having to grapple with the fact that that didn't mean that I'd failed somehow, but that's part of the fall, you know, divorce happens sin happens and so many have been sexually abused and they're left to wonder what their worth is, um, what their sexual worth is, what their worth is as people and why it even happened to them. Um, so that's a whole nother category of people where it's like, where did we leave room for that? Um, and, and, and I think too, people who've been sexually abused are left to ask, what did I do to, um, to make this happen to me because that's really what purity culture rhetoric leads to and i know that's another subject but it's important to mention that victims of sexual abuse were deeply hurt by purity culture mm -hmm. one of the things that's really helpful in your book is you center back you know towards the end and we'll get to this in the next segment i'm sure but 
when we talk about practical things. But, you know, how, you know, what would you say to parents and to youth workers if you want to start a conversation with kids about uh, sex and sexuality? You know, what is the overarching message of Scripture regarding the place and purpose of God's good gift of sex? Mm. Well, this is where uh, my book differs from a lot of other purity culture critiques that are happening right now. Um, I have an orthodox view of sexuality from scripture. I believe that God is clear that sex is very exclusive. It's for one man, one woman in marriage. That's what it's for. doesn't mean that it doesn't happen outside of it. doesn't mean that we don't sin, that we're not sinned against. But the purpose that God has for sex is pretty exclusive. Whereas sexuality is something we all have, right? It's a God-given. Sexuality and sex existed before the fall. They are not a result of the fall. And I think that's really important too, that yes, we see distortions of sex. We see distortions of our sexuality, um, but sex and sexuality were God's idea. They are good. Um, and so it's what we do with those things that matters. And we will fail. I think it's important to just say that, that we will fail sexually. And there is forgiveness for sexual sin. It's not the unforgivable sin. But I do believe that sex is for marriage. Yeah. And, um, and, and that's hard. That's a hard truth because um, we have been taught by secular culture and biblical culture that sex is a need. Like it's a right almost. Um, that if you reach a certain age or you've done all the things right, you deserve sex. And I think that that is, it's so hard to hear that you don't get to have sex um, unless you're married. Um, and even in marriage, it can be complicated, right? So I talk to so many people who struggle with um, sexual pain and so they can't have sex or, you know, it just makes their, their marriage difficult. Um, but our lives are not about sex. And Jesus lived a perfect life without sex. So many of my heroes of the faith, Rich Mullins, Amy Carmichael, um, sex is not what defines your worth or life's happiness. And I think it's so important for singles to hear that because I think they truly believe that they're missing out on like the height of all things. And God never says that sex is not eternal. It does not follow us into heaven. There's no giving in marriage in heaven. There's no marriage in heaven. And so I'm not trying to downplay what a good gift it is, but I think it's important that we take it off the pedestal. Yeah. And everything you've said here is really totally contrary to what the cultural narrative is saying right now. And this is, you know, what we have to communicate. And one of the things I love about what you said there was you, you were leaning into the reality of the fact that we are all sinful. We are all broken. All creation groans for redemption. And we're all sexually broken. And right. I think that is a truth that needs to be communicated to kids from a young age as well. That doesn't give you reason, uh, you know, to to uh, take advantage of God's grace. But at the same time, it helps you understand, you know, how we need to to, to lean into the power of the Holy Spirit and, and the support of the church and our brothers and sisters in Christ and really work through this together in community. This is so good uh, for those of you who are interested in reading Rachel Joy Welcher's book. It's called Taking Back or Talking Back to Purity Culture, Rediscovering Faithful Christian Sexuality. And we're going to take a break and come back uh, in just a minute and finish our conversation. If you enjoy listening to Youth Culture Matters and would like to support the ongoing efforts of this ministry, you can do so by visiting cpyu.org giving to make a donation. Your prayers and financial support make this podcast possible.
Well, welcome back to Youth Culture Matters, and I do want to thank everybody who's been who have been listening to this, our podcast over the years. I know so many of you are sharing this, you're subscribing, and wherever you get your podcast, you're leaving reviews. We love that. That's very helpful. And so be sure to let others know about this. As we continue our conversation with Rachel, something came to mind during the break, and that is, you know, what what is what are some of the outcomes of purity culture that we should be concerned about? You know, negative. We we've discussed some of those, but we're hearing so many stories now of young adults entering into a period of deconstruction. You know, deconstructing their faith and walking away from the faith. Have you seen or thought about Rachel any of the connections between the emphasis on purity in terms of a youth group experience or a home experience, and then these stories of later coming to coming of age and deconstructing faith. Absolutely, you know I see it on Twitter all the time. Uh, people talking about their experience with evangelical purity culture and where they're at spiritually now, and it's honestly been devastating. In my interviews for the book, I talked to so many people who are no longer walking with the Lord because. Um, they say that it kind of started with realizing these purity culture promises were lies. So I have have a few thoughts on that. Um, the first is that there's a type of deconstruction that is important for all of us. Um, when it's deconstructing in the sense that we're looking back at something and saying what is true and what isn't, right? And so that's what I'm doing with my book, Talking Back to Purity Culture. I'm parsing it out and saying what was biblical and what wasn't. We have to do that with what we were taught if you grew up in the church. Um, what was I told that was actually from the Bible? And what was I told that's just this extra fluff that's getting in the way of my worship of Christ? Um, but I will say this, that blaming um, apostasy on uh, purity culture, I don't think is is going to fly with God. I think that he has so much compassion. And I think that there's so much room for us to deconstruct and to struggle in our faith. But ultimately, it's Christ you're rejecting when you reject Christianity, not not the church, not purity culture. And so what I would encourage is people who are deconstructing and frustrated with purity culture to keep going, to keep digging into scripture, because what scripture teaches is true and doesn't change. And so you have the right to be angry about being lied to. You have the right to deconstruct, but don't turn from Christ because he is so worthy. Mm. You know, one of the things that uh, just picking up on that deconstruction conversation, I think that um, I'm, I'm noticing this in, in a lot of forums that we we participate in, and specifically with many of the parents that we work with, many of whom are uh, Gen Xers. They're 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 they were right dead smack in the middle. That was my generation of these conversations, and they may not be deconstructing. They might be loosely deconstructing. They, they might just absolutely be uh flabbergasted <laughs> to use a word uh they're just unsure how yeah. to really do this well one they just haven't dived into scripture or two they've just been so exposed to these these many things that we've now been talking about here in this episode mm -hmm. so i would just love for you to give some practical advice mm -hmm. i mean thinking first about parents and 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 how they can speak uh god's design for sex and sexuality and gender in the home and then maybe even um, we can pivot after that to, to, to youth workers. But I, I, I think first of the parent, what, what might you say are some practical steps, maybe even some things they can take from the purity culture or things that they got that will allow for them to be able to speak God's truth um, into 
their own home. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think when it comes to what you're saying about um, deconstructing, the pendulum always swings too far one way or the other, right? And so just for us to be aware that as we're critiquing purity culture, we need to not throw the baby out with the bathwater, as the saying goes, um, meaning we need to not throw Jesus out. But my encouragement for parents would be to teach their children to expect their sexuality. I think that's so important from a young age that um, our children aren't surprised or ashamed by their sexuality, but they know it's coming in different forms. Everyone experiences sexuality differently, but we are created as sexual beings and there's nothing wrong with that. That's That was God's plan. I think it's so important to establish that before you start saying, here's what not to do. You know, like you said, um, there's a, a bigger yes in this um, conversation that we've been missing. And so saying yes to the fact that you're made in the image of God and that includes sexuality somehow um, and that it's coming and that that's okay. And having feelings and desires is not sin. It's what we do with them that matters and we will fail and God will forgive. Um, but for parents of teenagers, one of the things that I share in the book, just from working with teenagers for so many years as a teacher, is that a great way to start these conversations is to use what they're already listening to and watching. Um, so what's their favorite TV show? What's their favorite song? And just ask them, hey, how are relationships depicted in that show? Or how is sex talked about by that character? And what do you think about that? So I noticed um, that I was able to start some important conversations in my English classroom at a Christian school by saying, over, overhearing someone talk about a TV show and saying, what do you think about the way they treat women in that show? And, um, you know, having them realize that some of their passive um, media intake is actually impacting their worldview about sexuality. And rather than pointing a finger at them and saying, what have you been doing? Just say, what do you think about this? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Let's discuss and use something that they're already interested in. So good. Sounds like Rachel's been listening to us, huh? Read what they read, watch <laughs> what they watch, listen to what they listen to. And I love the way, you know what? Here, here, I'm just going to point this out because something brilliant she's done there that so many parents do not do, and I think youth workers don't even do this, is we overhear something or we oversee something that comes at them from the media and we immediately say, turn that off, you're not to watch that. And right. what you did there was you asked a question, what do you think? And it just, it's a, it's a discussion prompt. It's a teachable moment. You're opening the doorway for, for conversations about, you know, things that matter. And not only that, but you're teaching them skills at biblical discernment, which they need to have, and they're not born with. And this is one of the problems in our culture right now, that, that so many people just accept the cultural narrative as true without ever thinking about it. And that's, and that's happening in the church you know, more and more, not just among the young, but um, amongst the old is like, I, 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 I don't know if you realize, but you got me a little excited there, you know, by saying <laughs> that, because that's part of our passion here, you know, uh, teaching people to do that and talking about the importance of culture. Uh, can I go back? I, I want to go back to the modesty thing and ask a very practical question there. Uh, what, what would you advise parents from the youngest ages to teach their sons and their daughters about modesty. You know, how do we frame that conversation to, you know, to rework it uh, from what it's become into something more healthy and and God honoring? That's a that's a tough question. Um, I think that maybe if we focused around 
how do we respect our own bodies and one another with how we dress as opposed to how can you cover up the sin, right? Because there's nothing sinful about the human body, but there are parts of our body that are reserved for specific functions. And even when it comes to sexual abuse, our kids need to know from an early age that they don't have to talk about certain things about their body. They don't have to let anyone touch them and that they need to know the specific names of their body parts so they can share what's happened to them um, in the case that they're abused. And I know that's hard to talk about, but it's so common. And I think we need to, our kids need to be empowered that it's their body. Um, it's God's, God created it, but it's their body. They don't have to, um, you know, do the things that people are asking them to do when it, you know, even this idea that a kid always has to go run and kiss the old person at church. Um, I, I think we need to get away from that. It's not that we want our kids to be rude, but we really need them to know that it's okay if they feel uncomfortable um, to, to say, I'm going to stick out my hand and shake your hand instead. Um, but as far as modesty, I think if we just teach our kids that it's about loving each other, it's about selflessness. So, in, in our culture, this is, you know, these are some of the parts that we tend to um, keep covered up because they've been sexualized. And when we go on the missions trip here, this is how we're going to dress. I'm going to buy you these clothes. And we just do this to love other people. It's not because our bodies are sinful. It's not because you're responsible for what someone does in their mind. Um, but we're just doing this out of love. And I think that's a, a really good way to address it, that it's about respect and love. It's not about the fact that you're just this walking, stumbling block. As someone who's observed cultural change and, and critiqued how we deal with these matters in the church, what advice would you give on what age parents can start address or should start addressing these things? Oh, goodness. Well, I should say I'm not a parent yet, um, but I have worked with teenagers, and I, I, I think the age is getting younger and younger, um, whether we like it or not. Honestly, when they ask the questions is when you need to give the answers and maybe not the full answer. You know, you know, your kids and you know what they're asking, but if they ask a question and you get embarrassed or think that it's not ready, they're going to be embarrassed and they're going to go seek out that answer somewhere else. And so you want to be the person telling them these things. You want to be the person helping them with their worldview. Um, and so to, to take any embarrassment away from the conversation by not chiding them for asking the questions, that is so, so important. Are there any resources that you would like to recommend beyond your book uh, that might be helpful for parents? And I'm thinking of the youth workers who are listening. You know, where do they go to learn how to teach about sex and sexuality? Obviously, you know, Project 619 is there to help, and some of the resources Jason has produced, your Christian sexuality curriculum, Jason, that's out there now, which we'll include a link to. You know, we have a sexual integrity initiative here, but what else is out there that you can recommend for us? You know, that's that's a question I don't feel confident answering because I spent so much time on what not to read. Um, but what I would say, I mean, and there are good resources out there. Absolutely. Um, I just am, have not spent as much time looking into those um, yet. So maybe I can get back to you on yeah. that. But here's what I say is that whatever you have your kid read, read it with them. Because what I did is I took those purity culture books and I read them in isolation and I internalized the messages and there was some good in there and there was some bad in there and I took it all in. I just swallowed it whole. And so I don't care what book you give your kid or how magnificent you think it is. It's not written by God, so it's not infallible and you need to read it with them. In fact, you could read even some of the books if you wanted to read a book that you grew up with, a purity culture book, and talk about it with them. I think that would be an incredible 
um, practice and discernment, um, whatever you want to do, but do it together, do it as a community. Um, do not just hand them a book or slide it under their door. Such a great word. Yeah. I, I appreciate yeah. that. One, one book I would, you were bringing this up. It hits upon all these things, but for younger children, it's something I always recommend to parents. It's called God made all of me. And it's a oh. beautiful book that really just kind of addresses some mm -hmm. of the need for us to address the beauty of our body, how God made it. It's a great resource. Love that. I'm going to check that out. Now, having said that, I want to go back just to emphasize something that Rachel said earlier, because, Rachel, when we talked about, you know, God's design, God's order for sex, sexuality, and gender, uh, and I'm throwing gender in there now, now you'll see why, uh, you, you talked about going back, you know, basically to the beginning of the biblical narrative and the creation account, you know, what God intended for his world mm -hmm. and for people. Can you just say a word about that, how important that is? Because I found that many who go off off course, I would say, from the biblical narrative, they would not say they've done that. But I think many who have gone off, when you ask them to talk about how they came to their conclusions biblically, they sometimes fail to go back to the creation narrative and start there. Would you just say a word about the importance of that? I really appreciated you bringing that up. So I think what you're asking is about just the orthodox, te orthodox teaching that um, sex was created as an expression of love and marriage between one man and one woman. Yeah. And that's obviously something that's being challenged left and right. And I think that, you know, a lot of my friends who have um, decided that same sex relationships are um, or the sexual expression in same sex relationships is OK. Um, they are approaching the conversation with compassion, but I think that they're also um, disregarding very uh, clear passages in scripture or, you know, using a different theology to explain it away. And I, I realize I'm oversimplifying because so many of my friends who've arrived at a different view on this um, are incredibly intelligent, have done the research. But I think ultimately, um, when we look at scripture, it is clear and it's difficult. And so, um, there's nothing easy about telling someone who is in love or even married to someone of the same gender um, what God's uh, purpose for sex is. But I think that more and more it's going to be something that we're called to do. More and more it's going to be something that makes us uh, viewed as unloving. And I hate that because I don't want people to think I'm unloving. I think we approach it with compassion and nuance, but it is clear um, from where I'm standing, it's clear in scripture that that's where sex belongs. And so I think there's, there's, God has so much grace for those of us who struggle with desires that can't be met biblically. And there, the church needs to grow so much in our compassion and desire to reach out to those who have struggles that are different than just typical heterosexual lust. Um, and we have a long way to go when it comes to, to that conversation, but um, it doesn't mean that we change the, the God's word right yeah. and say well now it's okay just because it's hard to say no uh, there's a lot that could be said i probably didn't do justice <laughs> no you that. did i i really appreciate this this is great and uh I, I just love the guidance you're giving us i love the work you've done in this book and before i turn it to jason to close us out here i want to recommend one resource as you were talking that i thought of that's been very helpful to me and many others as well it's a book by dennis hollinger called the meaning of sex and Dennis is an ethicist. I've known Dennis for years, and I really appreciate the way he approaches this. It really is a, a broad, sweeping, uh, but yet some depth, you know, obviously some depth to it as an ethicist, uh, a broad, sweeping overview 
of biblical sexuality. And that's just one of many resources. I know people can go to our Sexual Integrity Initiative and they can find some of the resources there. You also mentioned, I'll throw this out because we've had her on the podcast, but Nancy Piercy's Love Thy Body. Oh, Which that's is, a great book. Yeah. Absolutely. Just a and great... uh, Jackie Hill Perry's book, Gay Girl, Good God, is excellent. Um, Deborah Hirsch wrote a book called Redeeming Sex that is very interesting. And I, it, it, yeah, it really touches on the idea that sexuality encompasses more than just one act um, that's exclusive to marriage, but that it it's something that we all we all have the desire to be known and to know and that that is good and beautiful and can be expressed in different ways outside of just intercourse but that's a whole nother book and um i encourage read with discernment read together but it's a good one yeah let me throw well, another Rachel, one been, hey jason let me throw another all, one i'm interrupting you because now 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 the flood you know the waterfall of of resources coming as you as you talked about deborah hirsch's book i'm thinking about i don't know if you're familiar with jonathan grant's book divine sex and that's a good one as well. Very good. Go ahead, Jason. Awesome. I'm done interrupting well, you. Well, no, that's excellent. I'm, we're giving our, our listeners a, a lot of different resources. And as always, we'll have it in our episode notes, so that way you can check it out. Um, Rachel, any parting thoughts as we close up this this episode? We're so grateful for the knowledge mm -hmm. that you've brought. But maybe there's something that we didn't ask that you would love to par, uh, impart uh, on our listeners before uh, we close mm -hmm. this episode. I just like to always remind people that the true source of our purity is is not ourselves and our own actions, but it's Christ. He is the source of our purity, and he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Such a good word to, to end on. We're so grateful for the work that you've done, for the research that's here. Please, if you haven't already, check out the book, Talking Back to Purity Culture. As always, we appreciate those reviews and uh, uh feedback on our podcast and we're so grateful for you being a part of youth culture matters until next time we say goodbye thanks for joining us for youth culture matters a podcast from the center for parent youth understanding if you'd like to learn more about today's youth culture visit our website at cpyu.org and if you have any questions comments or feedback email us at podcast at cpyu.org